Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio with your host Ian Dunican. Okay, today is a little bit of a special episode release. Um, I'm going to call this conversations behind the scene here because <laughs> this was an old episode that I found that I thought I'd lost, but also I probably wasn't competent enough at using any of the sound equipment, which I'm still not even competent in using. Um, and yeah, anyway, so I found this and I thought, look, I'm going to I'm gonna throw this out and see what people think. There's a lot of joking, a lot of messing, a lot of laughing. For those who know me personally, that's kind of what I'm like. But this was my good friend, Reid Real. And we're in a pretty, pretty jovial mood. I was coming to the end of my PhD. Reid had just found out that morning that he had passed his PhD. Um, we were in Essen in Germany at the European uh, Sports Conference, uh, which is a massive... Um, conference titled ECSS happens every year thousands of people at it so myself and Ray took a few hours off to uh, sit in the hotel room and laugh and joke around with the microphones and and have a bit of a chat about some of the work we had done together and uh, we were training a lot of jiu-jitsu that week as well in uh, in Essen as well so we had a really good week and Reid is now at the um, I can't tell the actual title of the place but it's Gatorade he's working with Gatorade in Florida uh, GSSI um, I think it's a sports science institute it's titled could be wrong anyway Reid is an absolute guru in nutrition he's a black belt in jiu-jitsu and he did his PhD in weight cutting techniques in grappling um, and so he's got a great interest in grappling and if you even look up Reid's name on YouTube you'll see him grappling some high level people as well he's a he's a bit of an animal so I can't keep hold of him alright look I hope you enjoyed this episode it's a bit of fun uh, you may or may not get something over Re, 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 boom. When the crowd say boom, <laughs> boom. Selector. Do you remember that song? Uh, I remember, the, was it Craig David? Yeah, boom, boom. The crowd say boom, selector. Right, three, two, one, <coughs> we are live. So, today's guest is the nearly 99.99% Dr. Reed Real, and we say received an email today congratulations Reid you passed your PhD with some minor revisions how do you feel? Uh, feels good to finally tick the box and is that better? Yeah, cool. that's closer so first of all he's a doctor but he can't use a microphone how does that work? <laughs> I'm not a doctor yet 90% what did you say 99 I think it's about 90 you're a doctor now you can use a microphone it's okay <laughs> Reid is the smartest dumb person I know <laughs> <laughs> this podcast will have lots of jovial moments because me and Rita worked it off together. So how do you feel right now that it's all done? Uh, it's good. It's a it's a relief and it's good to finally um, be, be one step closer. So, yeah. Do you find it kind of hard to believe that it's all over and you got this this kind of... Is it a bit surreal at the moment? Is it not really sunk in yet? Uh, not really because it's been a long time coming. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're the same. So you... Um, I mean, you see it coming uh, uh, a long time in the future. So it's more just a tick the box and... Um, a uh, matter of process I think so yeah no it's really cool man it's awesome and uh, you know what it's really inspiring for me to see some of my other peers finish their PhD because as you get close to it you get a bit more frustrated so it's great to see people kind of coming off the end of the chocolate factory line and going woo we did it so it's really cool to see so big congratulations man it's, it's brilliant man. so I think it's awesome it's really good no seriously great thank you he's looking at me like I'm, I'm putting this up but I'm not <laughs> <laughs> so the, um, 
I know Reid for the last uh, probably about three years. We met originally at the AIS, the Australian Institute of Sport in the Combat Centre, which is a newly formed group, where a number of PhD students um, came to undertake a PhD related to combat sports. And so there was a number of different disciplines that were recruited in, from nutrition and dietitian, which Reid is, a dietitian, sorry, and um, well, other people then, um, such as Israel, who does stuff around sort of psychology and strength conditioning. <coughs> myself around the sleep, there was other people around talent acquisition and so on, but I think really kind of, um, when I went over there I really kind of hung around with Reid and uh, Israel, um, probably because we were older, probably a bit more experienced and obviously me and, me and Reid both do Jiu-Jitsu and, and Reid is a Jiu-Jitsu black belch um, and uh, an avid competitor as well. So Reid, how, how did you kind of... That's not me. It's not me either. Maybe it is me. How many phones do you have? It is him. Um, so Reid, how did you get to go to the AIS? How, how was that? How did you kind of get to that part of start a PhD at the AIS? So maybe I'll give a, um, some context uh, to my whole academic, um, I guess, journey. So I did an a undergraduate degree in health science, majoring in exercise science and nutrition. Um, and then following on from that, I did uh, an honours year, so one year research. Um, looking at uh, inflammation in human skeletal muscle in response to various feeding, um, so high-fat and low-fat feeding. And then after that, I did a master's in dietetics. So um, I'm a accredited practicing dietitian with the Dietitians Association of Australia. Um, and throughout that time, as, as you alluded to, um, I trained and competed in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So combat sports have always been a, a big passion of mine. So coming from that exercise science background and being a dietitian, um, and being interested in combat sports. Um, uh, so, so yeah, that, that sort of sets the scene. And I, I was working for about 18 months in the corporate health industry for um, uh, a corporate health company. So we did um, health and wellbeing programs for businesses. Um, and then I attended the Australian Institute of Sport for a sports nutrition course actually. So it was like further education post my uh, master's in dietetics. And somebody um, at the sports nutrition course that I was attending um, brought to my attention that the, the AIS was offering these PhD scholarships. Um, and I, I'd actually never thought about doing a PhD before, um, but these PhD scholarships were um, in, the, in the combat center, as you said. And so again, given my background with combat sports um, and being a dietitian, the, the opportunity to do a PhD uh, in combat sports and nutrition was absolutely perfect for me. And also with the PhD scholarship program at the Australian Institute of Sport, uh, that, that they had us working with athletes. So, you know, it was just a dream come true for me to be offered an opportunity where not only would I do a PhD in combat sports nutrition, but also gain experience working with combat sport athletes. And so I applied for the PhD scholarship and was lucky enough to um, be awarded it. And yeah, so that, that's how I, I got there in the first place. So how, how would you describe combat sports for people who don't know what combat sports is? What, what, what's the kind of array of sports in combat sports? Well, I mean, a lot of people think of, I guess, martial arts in terms of combat sports. And while, while they're, I guess, I mean, in one sense, they're one and the same. But combat sports specifically are the martial arts that um, ha have a sporting format. So in terms of the Olympics, so the Olympic combat sports are boxing, judo, wrestling and taekwondo. 
And as of 2020, at the Tokyo Olympic Games, uh, karate is, is introduced as the fifth combat sport oh, really? at the Olympics, yeah. And also technically fencing. Yeah, I was going to ask you, is fencing not in that group? Yeah, f- fencing is considered a combat sport. Um, but, I mean, as you know, at the Australian Institute of Sport, the Combat Centre, uh, fencing was separate to the other sports. And I guess, obviously, fencing um, has, has weapons uh, and they don't compete in weight categories. So it's, it's fairly different to, really? to the more traditional combat sports. No, yeah, not, I, thought, I thought fencing was weight dependent as well. Yeah, and I actually don't know much about fencing at all. I think in certain because there's different formats of fencing, like different swords that they use, and I know they have teams and and all this sort of stuff. I think under certain formats they might have height categories, but don't quote me on that. I really don't know much about fencing at all. Yeah, okay, interesting. So. Yeah, you went to the IAS. Um, did you not like the kind of sports, or the, sorry, not sports, the kind of industry, nutrition, wellness stuff? Did you not like it? Or was it a bit like the Wizard of Oz? You got to see behind the curtain and was like, oh, this is, I'm not doing it. You, you mean like the corporate health stuff? Yeah, the corporate health stuff. Yeah, it, it was all right. Um, I mean, not, not many people get to uh, follow a career path that they're really passionate about. So most people settle for, um, you know, uh, I, I guess, uh, a job that is, uh, bearable, and and for me, corporate health has definitely been bearable. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've I've done a lot of labouring jobs and terrible jobs uh, when I was younger. So working as a corporate health dietitian definitely beat working in abattoirs or in, in a factory or right. um, so, d- uh, doing roof tiling and stuff. Can we, can, we, can, we, can we just talk about this briefly? Because dinner night, me and Reed were for dinner, and I was laughing so hard because Reed was just listing out all the jobs that he tried before he went to uni. So, Reid, do you want to kind of give a quick list of the jobs that you've done? Because the reason being, I think a lot of people think that people with PhDs are working at academia are some kind of just, you know, golden boy or girl that's had this brilliant life and, and, and goes to, to university and has this brilliant, like, trajectory of, you know, being really good at school and all that. And obviously me and you are kind of a little bit different and not saying that's right or wrong, but we're just a little bit different in what the path that we took. But when you start listening to jobs or not, I just couldn't stop laughing because it was like every job under the sun. <laughs> so do you want to list some of those jobs that you've done that are different than what you do now? Because I think it's really cool to actually, I think that would inspire a lot of people to go, no matter what you're doing now, you can do something different. Yeah, I've done a few. And um, and, and, and on the, like you said, not the traditional academic route. Um, so I dropped out of high school when I was 16. I think the first job I ever had was uh, in a potato cake factory. <laughs> um, uh, I also worked in uh, abattoirs, so it was like a, a pork meat, meat processing plant. I did that for almost two years. Um, I've worked in so some other factories. What was another one? Another one was uh, so cicada, those little um, r- r- rice cakes. So there's been potato cakes, there's been rice cakes. Um, I've done uh, tree planting, so worked for a seedling farm, weed spraying, <laughs> furniture removing, roof tiling, concreting. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's been a few. Um, uh, there, there was one, like a delivery truck driver, but I was what they called the jockey, so another guy drove the truck, and I would um, ha- help un- unpack the truck, and we were delivering, like... Uh, Rice cakes. Like, well, f- f- funny you say that. It was like dry products to the um, all the Asian groceries around Melbourne. So like all the ramen noodles and that sort of stuff. Um, and then another one, another stupid factory. There, there was a company called Saizaria. And, uh, and this was a Japanese company that made frozen Italian food. And for some reason, <laughs> they, they had a factory in Melbourne. <laughs> Japanese frozen Italian yeah, yeah. So that so that was a funny one. Oh god! And th- there's probably been others, but that's a that's a small sampling. Oh 
man, it's so different to what you do now, and that's awesome because you know, Reed, you're really good at what you do, and it's you know that energy doing all those different jobs, just finding your passion is awesome because so many people like spend so long trying to find a job that they want to do and never find it or never like you say set up for something else. So it's really cool to see you know you work in an area you want to work in, and you're really good at. It. I see, I've been involved in two studies with you, one with judo and one with the weight cutting one, the biggest one we did last year together, which was quite hectic, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes, but. You know, man, you put in a lot of effort, you're quite passionate, you're knowledgeable, the athletes, you know, really respect you. And not just because you're a jiu-jitsu competitor as well, but also from your communication and how you do stuff. And, you know, it's it's a credit to you because, um, yeah, there's too many people out there that wouldn't, wouldn't do what you've done. So I think it's really good, man. I'm going to blow a lot of smoke up your hair, but it's good. Yeah, you, thanks. You, 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 you do a really good job, man. You're good to work with as well, so... Uh, it's, it's really good. Greatly appreciated. It's good to be good at your job, but it's also um, it's good to have genuine relationships with people that you work with, and um, you know, to to be a good person and be known for that. That's good as well. Yeah, and you've got a good sense of humour as well, which we need. You know, we both do a lot of applied work, which involves a lot of sort of collaboration, communication with the athletes, and it kind of can be quite stressful. Um, and this might be a good time to talk about this weight cutting study we did last year. Do you want to kind of just give a brief overview of this weight cutting study that we did last year, which was the first in the world to do, which is quite applicable for combat fighters or MMA fighters? Sure. So I assume your your audience isn't really combat sport focused, is it? It's, some it's, it's some very broad. Some are rugby, some are combat, some are, you know, just working in a factory or doing different things. And, sure. You know, like, there's all different types of people listening to this. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll give a, a lot of context then. So... Um, even if you're not interested in combat sports, most people are probably aware um, of the situation of weight divisions. So combat sports uh, separate athletes into weight divisions. So, you know, in, in a broad sense, you have like heavyweight, lightweight, middleweight. Um, and the idea of separating competitors by weight is so that one competitor doesn't have a significant size or strength advantage uh, over the other guy. Um, and so because of this, it's common for athletes to try and reduce their weight as much as possible uh, so that they qualify for a lighter weight category and get to fight smaller opponents um, and, and to, to make sure that the athletes have made weight or, or they meet the qualifications of the weight they have a weigh-in where the athletes attend an official weigh-in, an event can be three hours, can be 24 hours before their, their fight or their competition where they have to stand on the scales and, and, and make sure that they're at the correct weight. Um, and, and so then there's a period of time after the weigh-in before they fight um, where they can recover and eat foods and fluids um, pr- prior to competing. And so athletes recognize this. And so in addition to trying to get their body weight down through reducing their fat mass, um, <clears throat> excuse me, athletes also make use of various uh, rapid weight loss techniques which tend to focus around uh, dehydration so when you think about it so several months before a competition an athlete starts dieting he gets his body fat as low as possible so he's got down to 80 kilograms just for argument's sake um, and then in the day or two days or three days before the weigh-in maybe he'll stop drinking water um, uh, re- reduce the portion sizes or completely fast um, so refrain from food and then p- potentially sit in a sauna, um, utilize other sweating techniques where they can uh, temporarily reduce their body weight even further. So the 80 kilogram athlete, after losing um, s- sweat and also emptying out their stomach, could maybe weigh in at 75 kilos or even uh, lighter, step on the scales, get their weight certified. Um, and then they've got the 24 hours or however long between the weigh-in and the fight to recover from this uh, dehydration. So th- there's more. So... Um, yeah, so, so there's various different uh, rapid weight loss techniques that athletes use. Um, a lot of them are, are 
un- understood and sort of uh, obeyed normal physiology and, and they're, they're well documented. But there is uh, some novel techniques, so uh, other forms of rapid weight loss which uh, athletes engage in which haven't undergone research. Um, and so that's what we did with this uh, study. So one of these methods is known as water loading. And so what water loading involves is that an athlete will drink um, increased volumes of fluid. So we're talking an athlete might drink eight or 10 or 12 liters of water per day for three or four days in a row. The idea is that it increases your urine production, which- No, if- no really, that just, that's just water alone. That doesn't include tea, coffee, Coca-Cola, and it's just pure water. Well, uh, I mean, it, it could be anything, whatever the athlete chooses to do. Like I said, this stuff hasn't really been researched. So, I mean, different people do do different things. But you, know, you wouldn't have an athlete drinking 10 years of Coca-Cola, would you, or 10 years of coffee, would you? Uh, I mean, in the study we did, we allowed them to drink coffee, but, but we just factored it in. You probably don't want 10 litres of coffee. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, in general, in, in a um, nutrition sense, like any fluid counts as fluid. Like a lot of people think, I'm meant to drink my eight glasses of water a day. You know, what if I have tea or coffee? Does that... Um, cancel it out and it's like no fluid's fluid um, alcohol is probably the one that you wouldn't count towards that really yeah so alcohol tends to have a diuretic effect whereas i think the um diuretic effect of caffeine and coffee is often overstated particularly for people that habitually consume it really? um yeah yeah so, so just back on the study so so we decided to have a yeah so with this water loading athletes will increase their fluid intake for three or four days in a row to increase their urine production um, and then they'll cut the fluid. So you're drinking 10 litres per day for four days. You go into the toilet like crazy. Um, and then on the uh, after three or four days, you stop drinking fluid altogether. The idea is that you keep going to the toilet, you keep urinating, um, and therefore you lo- lose extra weight than if you simply um, stop drinking uh, altogether. So this is very popular in mixed martial arts. Bodybuilders also um, use this technique to help thin their skin out, in quotation marks. Um, and also powerlifters uh, have reportedly used this, but no one's actually investigated this with a clinical trial. So that's what we looked at in that study was to, um, in a controlled setting at the Australian Institute of Sport, um, document this water loading process um, and do blood measures and weight measures and um, control all the food and standardize all the training and, and just to, to really um, scientifically scrutinize this uh, weight cutting technique to see whether it works um, and whether it's dangerous because... Um, a lot of people might have heard of the term like water intoxication or people running into trouble from drinking too much water. Um, and so the actual clinical condition which arises from this is known as hyponatremia, which means uh, like low blood sodium. Yeah. So you've got salt in your blood or sodium in your blood. Um, when you drink these crazy volumes of fluid, um, you actually dilute the sodium in your blood, which is um, required for a lot of uh, processes in the body. Um of particularly of particular importance is like uh, nerve conduction so um people run into trouble where uh they might get heart problems from diluting the blood sodium and the nerves don't fire properly and um this happens in endurance running a long distance ultramarathon a few people have died from this yeah correct so it's can be be, it's probably more dangerous than that because they keep drinking too much water but not replacing the salt That, that that's right yeah and 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 that's when i mean i think the only recorded deaths actually there was one in um in a military setting, um, but it's it, it and then there's a few like you hear every now and then like a radio competition that for some reason that's always the one that gets brought up where they have a competition on the radio where it's you know see how much water you can drink in an hour, and um, and a few people have died from that. But other than these um, sort of one-off examples, it yeah it's always endurance athletes. It's it's um, at marathons and it tends to be recreational runners. 
um, that think they're sweating a lot when really they're not sweating that much. Um, and particularly in like a cold climate where you're not sweating as much either. Uh, and But yet they're trying to adhere to the recommendations to make sure to stay hydrated. So they just drink way too much fluid. Um, and, and yeah, it, uh, it arises in those situations. I remember a couple of years ago in Leadville in Colorado and a pre-race, pre-race briefing for the Leadville 100 miler, um, this doctor spoke about that exact issue. And he said that the, the previous year that a number of people have been taken to the hospital where their kidneys had <coughs> shut down. They just had drank way too much water. And you see the start to race at Leadville, for example, it starts at 4 a.m. in the morning. And the minute you run out of town, everybody's gone into the bushes, going to the toilet. And so it's the middle of the night, you've got these torches on. Everybody's shining torches on where you see a beer bum in your face or, you know, someone with their pants down. Because everybody's just <laughs> running into the bushes. It's, it's quite bizarre how much this overconsumption of water. So getting that balance for endurance runners is, is difficult as well. So I think you're right. A lot of people just, like, over-drink. So. But obviously that strategy is used to cut the weight. So in, in the study read... Um, and we'll talk about some of the methodologies we used as well, but was it dangerous? Did you find any difference between those who had the water and those who like, didn't water load? Yeah, we, we actually did not. So um, again, like hyponatremia is the, uh, the condition in which blood sodium is diluted to dangerous levels. Um, and what we found was, so, so we had two groups um, of athletes, so a control group who consumed a normal amount of water. Uh, and then a the water loading group or the intervention group, which consumed obviously the increased uh, volume of fluid. And so we set the water loading group at 100 mil per kilogram of body mass of uh, water. So for a um, 100 kilogram athlete, that's 10 liters of fluid um, or 7.5 liters for the 75 kilo athlete. Um, and we actually found that, uh, so their blood sodium did decrease, uh, but stay within reference ranges. So within the safe range uh, that, that um, doctors and in a clinical setting that they would use for to, to indicate normal sodium levels. So, so yeah, there, there, there was no risk of hyponatremia um, in our study. The other thing is that uh, we made sure to encourage the athletes to disperse the fluid out over the day. So unlike the radio competitions or the uh, marathon <clears throat> cases where the guys are drinking, you know, four or five liters in, in 30 minutes, um, our athletes were spacing it out over the course of 12 hours or, or, or more throughout the day, so that might have helped. The other thing is we um, the diets they were being fed, they weren't high sodium, but they definitely weren't low sodium. So they were, they were having a moderate amount of sodium um, and they spread the water out o- over the course of the day. So that's probably what prevented our hyponatremia. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And then the other part we looked on this as well, which was because um, when Reid was doing this study at the LIS, we thought, well, we have all these athletes in this highly controlled environment. We have a, an isolated kind of um, sleeping environment. We had a, a separate block at the IS, which just had us in as athletes or um, kind of academic or research staff, you want to call us that, whatever. And so we looked at sleep as well. So using actigraphy devices, we had actigraphy devices in all the guys as well before the study, during the study, and, and in the day after. And we also looked at uh, things like leg circumference. Um, we looked at a number of measures out of these devices as well to see if there was, with the hyponatremia, going to be uh, nocturia, which is like basically just waking up to go to the toilet throughout the night, which would have an increase in wake after sleep onset and more sleep disturbances. And surprisingly as well, we didn't find any difference between the two groups either for this. So as they went through the week, the two groups, and the both lost weight, you know, we didn't find any difference in the sleep. But I think what is interesting doing this again would be, from the sleep perspective, is if this was a real fight, the, the nerves of a fight, the competition aspect of a fight, the media attention on a fight might might throw off the sleep a little bit different than this kind of controlled environment. So I think um, without, the, without the kind of thoughts of having a fight at the end of the week, it was a little bit easier for them to relax 
Um, it'd be interesting to do this in like the Ultimate Fighter House, where the guys are cutting weight constantly and looking at their sleep and seeing there's a change in it, you know, and phone those type of things you know, on that TV show because they're living together, they've got to fight each other. You know, our guys didn't have to fight each other, although they wanted to fight each other, I think, but <laughs> <laughs> they're going a bit crazy. It was a bit, it was a bit animalistic on the last night, but um, you, lock, you lock up a bunch of 20, 20 dudes for like nine nights and that's going to happen so i i think you're exactly right it would be interesting to to look at the um just the whole sort of mental side and the psychology um combined with the sleep in that week before a fight um and to even track it over a fight camp because obviously there's um anxiety and nerves leading up to the fight but just to see how it peaks and at what stage uh leading up to the fight but i guess what what you found in in our study was that the um when, you, when you're not looking at the fight and you're just looking at the weight-cutting technique, that there was no difference uh, between the water-loading group and the control group. But obviously, if you throw the, uh, the nerves of an actual fight on top of that, um, there, there, there probably would be differences compared to um, just a habitual training week. So yeah, if you followed fighters, it, it'd actually be really interesting to follow some fighters or a fighter um, even before they've accepted a fight. And because I wonder whether, you know, the even if the fight's three months away, but the day that you sign on the dotted line saying that you're gonna have a fight, um, you know, m- maybe you're very nervous for that first week and then it peters out and then it rises again towards the fight. So yeah, I mean, th- there's a lot that goes into um, into fighting and the psychology um, and the sleep and anxiety is, uh, is interesting stuff. Like, did, you, did you ever have a fight at school? Sorry? Did you ever have a fight at school? Or when you were younger? Yeah. Somebody goes, meet me at three o'clock when I'm a fight. Nah, n- 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 nothing like that. No. We, we, we never set times. <laughs> well, it was like that at our school. It was like, oh, like having a day. It's like half, in the movies. Half three at the back, at the back yeah, at our school. At the back of the box like, shed. Then it's been like four hours, like breaking it. You know, I gotta go and fight this dude. <laughs> and all I wanna do is go home and have something to eat, you know? It's raining. I don't want to be fighting some guy in the yard. But, you know, it's like, it's, it's that sort of thing would make you nervous as well. So I think you're right. Uh, across a fight camp, it'd be very interesting to have a look at. So, um, yeah, uh, an interesting area. So the other thing I don't think that people would appreciate about this study is the amount of work that went into this. Like you took blood samples in the morning, blood samples at night. Every guy walked around with some sort of jug, a urine jug. So basically every ounce, every millimeter <laughs> of urine that came out had to go into this jug. Yeah. So the guys who carried around this yellow colored thing for the whole study and with a water bottle as well. And it was often times where nearly drank out the wrong one as well. Which there was. It was quite funny. Yeah. Um, but that was all collected throughout the day. So there was like buckets of urine going everywhere, blood getting pulled out of people, guys going ash and grey from blood getting poked and prod twice a day. And on top of that, they were training during the week as well. They had two of their mm-hmm. sessions between um, wrestling, judo and jiu-jitsu. And they weren't easy sessions. I jumped in for a few and I was in bits. So it was quite a tough week. So I think in terms of without having a fight week, camp as such it was pretty physical yeah it, it was it was definitely a lot to ask of the participants um but i mean we gave them a lot as well like i think it was a good experience for them and they formed a little uh community um out of the study so they all stay in touch with each other um and, and they got like some you know some really good coaching out of it um a lot of sports science information um a lot of information on on themselves so their body composition and stuff like that um, the sleep measures, and I, I know you counselled a, a lot of them, um, but we did get a lot from them. I'm just trying to do the maths in my head. So for one of the bigger guys, um, so, so 90 kilogram athlete, I'm just trying to think, he would have collected like, what are we, it's probably like, so it was five days, he would have been like 30, maybe 40, maybe 40 litres of urine he would have collected over, over the time. It would have been, it's like 50 ml of blood per day. So 
it's like half a liter of blood we took out of them uh you know 40 liters of urine um yeah it was it was a lot wasn't it yeah, it was it was, a, it was an awesome study. It was it was it was time consuming and tiring as well. What we should have done was measured our sleep, particularly particularly. <laughs> yeah. Because I think we were averaging like an eighteen hour day. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. And it was some nights that me and Reed were just fried. I got a few pictures of Reed um, at ten o'clock at night, and his eyes were like, I don't know what you were like. You were like a zombie. Like it is just funny. I I saw those pictures recently. I was looking through my pictures at home, organizing my photo library, and this picture popped up, and your eyes were just black in your head, and you just looked at me as if like I was the devil, and I was like, and I took a picture of you. But yeah, it was it was pretty it was pretty funny, um, pretty crazy week. But it's good too. I think on these big studies, having somebody you can work with, mm. someone can help you out. Because we had athletes that go to the hospital for potential concussion, runs to the airport, looking after guys. And I don't think anybody understands how many questions these guys ask. <laughs> yeah, read what's for dinner. Read what's this. Ian, my watch said this. Ian, where are we going now? What are we doing? And you're like, it's the last day. If you don't get it by now, like <laughs> just constant questions. But it was fun. It was stressful, but it was fun. Like I was, I was done at the end of it. I'm sure you were as well. Yeah, I remember on the last day, I um, so the last thing we did was the the last uh, f- physical testing um because we did testing at the start of the intervention and then right at the end we tested the athletes again so like strength and power and uh um anaerobic capacity and um to see if there's any differences between the groups and i remember like the the very last guy he was on that bike and we're counting down the last few seconds and uh and he got off the bike and so the study was done at that stage and i should have been happy but i wasn't happy i it was like post-traumatic stress disorder literally and we went and sat in that dining hall and the questions didn't stop remember they, they wanted to fill up their pockets full of yogurts and muesli bars on their way out and uh and that was two days before i actually so this was last year it was about a year a year ago yeah, it was last june was like right now because i actually um this conference that we're at now in uh germany it's the uh ecss the european college of sports science annual conference and so last year as soon as the study finished it was two days later i jumped on a plane and headed to the uk um because i went to the uk before going to this conference last year and i remember it's just like yeah that study was over and i should have been happy but i wasn't happy and i was just a zombie and I jumped on that plane and I think I just slept for the, you know, 24 hours <laughs> from from Australia to, um, I think I went through Malaysia and then to the UK. And then I was in Europe for three weeks and I didn't want to speak to anybody. It was like, and then I think it took nearly until the time that I came home to, to feel somewhat normal again. Like it was literally post-traumatic stress disorder for about, for, for about three weeks. And of course, anyone that's actually had PSD. Um, P- PTSD would be uh, shaking their head at me now, but it was it was bad. Yeah, you were pretty pretty fried at the end. I was fried. Yeah, were just, the questions never stopped at the end. <laughs> Even I was shaking my head, going, "Listen, just like no, I go away." A few times I was just like, "Go away from me!" Like I just can't because we were running in four different directions, and we had a, you like particularly on your side taking all the blood samples in the urine. You had a team with like you know nearly ten volunteers coming in on the weekends and after hours, and so you're trying to keep them happy, and then you were trying to keep the study going. But then you had all these questions on top of you. And then, yeah, they're just like kids. But look, it was great fun, but it was just crazy. It was just, it was really funny in some ways. Yeah. Really like traumatic in other ways. Yeah, they're, they're trying to manage all the different personalities and keep everybody happy. And like you said, you've got volunteers that are helping out, take blood and come in in the mornings and late at night and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then you've got all these study subjects because, I mean, they don't have to do anything. They're, they're there voluntarily, but you don't want them to know that. You know, you, you want everyone to... To, to, to go through the process and to do everything they're told. But at the end of the day, if they're unhappy, they can just walk out halfway through. And, um, and, and that's your study that you've 
poured your heart and soul into for the past few months setting it up gone and uh so you're trying to keep everyone happy and i remember when it was done i said to a few people i said i could not manufacture another um like false uh what's the word i'm trying to think here like manufacture another false interaction if i tried like my my ability to just keep people happy and to tell people what they want to hear was just all used up and there was like i could not be asked by the end of it i was very snappy yeah you did did awesome man it was was such like a big project to do so you you did really well so that was good so really after all this kind of stuff you've looked at in your phd around weight cutting and then this big study last year and is cutting weight before a competition advantageous? Because I'm sure a lot of people would look at this and go, that's ridiculous doing this. But is it advantageous or is there a difference between sports or age or weight or male and female? What, what have you kind of found overall? Yeah, well, there's an, an extensive uh, body of research um, out there b- b- before I started doing my stuff, um, which has looked at this. Excuse me. Um, and yeah, I think, I mean, th- 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 there's a lot to that question and it depends who you are, what you're trying to uh, get out of your sport, why you're competing. Um, <clears throat> but, but if we take the absolute um, t- tip of the pyramid, so if we're talking elite athletes, uh, Olympians, um, people fighting professionally, and if we ask the question in, in that context, um, is cutting weight advantageous? I think it depends on the sport, um, and it depends. Uh, a, a big part is uh, the, 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 the time frame of the weigh-in relative to the competition. So for sports where you weigh in the day before, where you've got 24 hours um, in between the weigh-in and the fight, I think athletes should cut weight. So if you're fighting in the 80-kilogram division and you're 80 kilograms normally, um, I, I think you're doing yourself a disservice given the fact that most athletes are probably going to be 85 or, or heavier um, and temporarily lower their weight um, just for the weigh-in and then bounce back up. Um, what we've found from some of the studies that, that I did and, and also when we combine this with the existing literature um, it seems that in Olympic boxing, which has a weigh-in in the morning, um, and then also in Taekwondo, um, that th- th- there was no effect on success of athletes who cut weight compared to those who do not. Um, but in the grappling sports of judo and wrestling, um, there, there seems to, to be a benefit to, to cutting weight and to being larger um, at the time of the fight. Um, and this could be for a number of reasons. One of the reasons that we uh, put forth was the technical differences between the sports. So in striking sports, boxing and taekwondo, where you're punching and kicking each other, um, perhaps success is more dependent on uh, the strategic movements of your own body, where you're trying to get in and out of range um, and throw strikes, whereas for the grappling sports, where you're trying to manipulate the opponent's body, um, perhaps weight and therefore cutting weight um, is, is more advantageous there. So I think it does depend on the sport. But for, you, for your recreational athlete, um, I think it just depends what you want to get out of your sport. You know, if, if you're just doing it for fun and you like competing for the sake of competing, um, you know, then is it worth putting yourself through this, um, you know, pr- process of cutting weight, which a lot of people don't find enjoyable? Um you know, p- perhaps not, but yeah, it all depends on your level and what you're trying to get out of it. So really, um, that's a great overview of all the studies you've been doing and sort of the applicability to combat athletes. What are you doing now? So PhD's over, you're 99.9% of the doctor. What are you, do- what are you doing right now? 
Uh, right now we're in Germany at, attending a sports science conference, but um, literally, right? This morning, what to do? I'm sitting in an armchair in Reed's hotel room, and Reed is lying on the bed with a mic. That's really what's happening right now. <laughs> so let's be really literal. We've got to be literal about it, right? <laughs> <clears throat> so um, all right, all right. We won't be not right now, but uh, in in general. So what? Probably six weeks ago, I just relocated to uh, Bradenton, Florida. Um, I. In America, that's correct. Um, And I've just taken on a role with uh, the Gatorade Sports Science Institute, so GSSI, at the IMG Academy in in Florida. So it's a a role as a senior scientist um, helping um, conduct uh, research with athletes uh, with the Gatorade Sports Science Institute. So I've been in Florida for about six weeks. Um, I've I've officially been working for two weeks. So it's, um, it's very early days in a new chapter of my life. Mm, I'm sure the work is going to be stimulating and um, interesting and exciting. Florida, I'm not so sure about yet. We'll um, w- w- watch this space. There's there's a lot of churches and gun shops and uh, <laughs> and American flags getting around. So um, I, I think they voted Trump. Florida did, and uh, if if that tells you anything, so yeah, we'll um, we'll, we'll see. I'll, I'll reserve judgment for now. And uh, coincidentally, do you like churches and guns? <laughs> uh, I definitely don't like churches, and um, yeah, I don't, I don't think guns are a good idea. Good idea either. So, so yeah, it's uh, it, it's different. It's really yeah. different. Than Australia. It's like it's really really different. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's um yeah. There's not many churches in Australia, and and they really like they're not very uh, in your face. And it's it's hard to get a gun in Australia, so it's completely different. I, I turn on the news, and um, there's there's a mass shooting every single day, so so that's different. Yeah, and that's not that's not obviously reported in the media outside of America. It can be localized just to that state, couldn't it? Like, as in- yeah, I I mean maybe I didn't watch the news enough, but I didn't realize the um the extent of it. Literally every single day there's a mass shooting, and um and sometimes two or three. But uh, yeah, it's it's a bit of a shock. Do you know what's interesting on this at this point? I don't want to go into a big gun debate, but um. Um, I read a study about maybe a year and a half ago that looked at neighbourhoods in America and basically where there was more violence in the neighbourhood, guns, crime, all these different indices, sleep was actually down. <laughs> because people were like kind of, you know, hyper aroused by all this stuff that was happening. And it, you, you think about it, it makes sense. If you actually go to bed and hear the gunshot of people outside screaming outside your window every night. You know, I, I find it hard with a fan on some nights, you know. <laughs> Gunshots, screaming, roaring, cars you know, drug dealers outside, all these type of things were discussed in this in this article about, I think it was in the, might be the New York Times, I might be wrong, but it was referring back to this paper, and it makes you think about sort of the effect that would have on just the community social and, you know, the health and the, and the sort of, the, the space of the community, like how it affected as well, so it's quite quite different as well. Of course, I'm sure not just sleep, but I, I, I think a lot of um, markers of health will be down in these neighbourhoods. Yeah, quite yeah. interesting, yeah. I'd, I'd maybe Sure. I don't know how we'll go there. <laughs> we'll get, get everyone collecting their piss. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, Reid, if people want to get in contact with you, find out more about sort of um, your area around combat sports and nutrition, what sort of uh, modes of media are you on? Yeah, so funnily enough, you just said um, combat sports nutrition. So I've got a website, which is uh, combatsportsnutrition.com. Um, I don't update it as much as I should, but that's got um, uh, details about what I do and uh, some, some blog posts and articles that I've written. 
Um, for those that are, that are nerds and into the science, I have a ResearchGate profile. Um, you can see my articles online if you maybe Google Scholar and search my name, Read Real. Um, you'll find the articles that I've written in uh, scientific journals. Um, even Facebook, they can contact me on Facebook. I do have a, a Twitter, is it called a Twitter handle or a Twitter account? But um, I, I don't actually use it, so I'm not active on Twitter. Um, we clarify this, it's not that you don't use it, you just don't know how to use it. I don't know how to use it, yeah, that's, that's correct. I've also got an Instagram account that I don't use. But, but I think I'm up to, it could, be one, it could be 280 followers with zero photos. So I'm yet to make a post. So if you work it out as a follower to post ratio, I'm actually doing better than those models. <laughs> because because they might have 10 million, 10 million followers, but they've also got you know 50,000 photos, whereas I've got zero photos and 200 followers. So I'm yeah, doing okay. Yeah, you're a pyramid comparison Kim Kardashian. Kim Kardashian has more followers, right? Run a T-test on it, we'll see. Unbelievable. So, uh, so mainly Facebook, research, yeah, combat sports, nutrition are probably the three best things. Sure. And you're yep. lurking around on Instagram and Twitter every now and then. And um, what about this book you have? Uh, yeah, so, so, so there is an, an ebook that I've uh, written, and again, you can um, link to that through my website, but the direct link is just combat sports nutrition ebook.com. Um, so, so that's available as well. I think it's $19 or something at the moment. So, um, yeah. That's a pretty good guide for people who want to look at cutting weight or even reducing body weight before in a fight camp or even just maybe moving on weight classes. There's a whole range of stuff in that book. It's pretty big. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty proud of it, actually. It's about 150 pages and um, it just sort of covers everything. It's, it's sort of basic nutrition science um, in the context of combat sports. So it's, it's everything you would need to know about nutrition um, and, and dieting, um, but written um, with a combat sports focus. So in a language that our fighters can understand and, and it's sort of... T- gives you everything that you need to know um, without sort of all the extra stuff. So it's, it's a few textbooks that have been distilled into 150 pages. Yeah, no, it's, really good. it's a really good practical guide as well. It's easy to, easy to read, easy to search. So you can jump into sections or you can read it front to back. There's some sort of, uh, just like ideas of diet plans and so on. And, uh, you know, there's lots of good info in there. So yeah, awesome. Any final comments, Reid? Um, no, I, I think you covered it all. You just done with it now, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> so when do you fly back to the States? Um, when do we leave? I, I leave Sunday morning. So I catch a train to Amsterdam and, uh, and and head back to the States and back in the office on Monday, likely. Wow. You might want to get my free jet lag book read on my website. I should, I should. It's a, it's a free 35-page download there you can get. It's actually it's free now, so you can just download it there, PDF link. Give you some ideas, but I think... Uh, the closer you get to the leaving, the harder it's going to be. So you can make some changes before you leave. But anyway, it was um, it was good to it was good to catch up with you here at this conference. Um, yeah, it's kind of weird like going on these things. You run into all these people again, and you know it's it's pretty funny. We had we had a bit of fun this week. We did some jujitsu here as well uh, with the guys at PSV Essen. That was that was good fun. Good tough session. We sweated. We went out for food. Reed nearly had a nervous breakdown because we were getting too late. late. He was getting angry. <laughs> combination of hungry and angry. And it was like eleven p.m. when we we had eaten. And so, yeah, we had a few late nights, but it's probably more related to the light because here in Europe in summer, it gets dark around half 10, quarter to 11. So you kind of get tricked, don't you? You think it's like 7 o'clock and mm-hmm. you're still out, but it's like, oh no, it's 10 o'clock. Even last night, I think it was 10 o'clock at the time we go home. And then combined with the jet lag, it's, um, it's, a, it's an interesting combination. Yeah, and lots of bad coffee. Like lots of coffee. bad coffee. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. Nice coffee. All right, Reed, I'll let you go to sleep seeing as you're on bed. Good night. All right, thank you, Ian. That was good, man. You know, I don't know what, that's what.